Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, author of Fantasy, Romance, and all of the uh, wonderful places they overlap and intersect. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. I have my um, A Little Paradise is Good for the Soul mug today. Uh, definitely feeling the need for that little bit of paradise. I'm sure we're all feeling that here on this Wednesday. Uh, November 25th, the day before Thanksgiving in the U.S. Uh, you know, a lot of us are not with family like we normally would be. And that's hard. I didn't expect that to make me weepy. Yeah, so, you know, Thanksgiving is an interesting holiday here uh, in the U.S., you know, I know some people say that they just don't really get why people care about getting together so much. You know, it's like, oh, you can have a meal anytime. Um, but for many people, I think Thanksgiving is a favorite holiday because it is a is the least pressure in some ways. I don't know. Uh, my family, we do not sell, even though we, you know, ostensibly Catholic. Um, nobody practices in my family. We're sort of Catholic, like we're Irish. Uh, you know, we don't really celebrate Easter and we kind of celebrated Mother's Day, but really our biggest celebrations of the year when we would um, make a big deal are Thanksgiving and Christmas. That was just a particular culture of our, fam of our family. And I've been reading some things lately about, you know, especially with some of the struggles against the pervasiveness of the Christian right and uh, you know Christian majority thinking that those of us who claim that we celebrate a secular Christmas do not. And, you know, I don't know if that's even worth getting into, except that I know that Christmas for us is um, not very religious at all. There's, you know, like a few icons here and there. Um, and as a comparative religious studies major, I feel like I'm more keenly aware than most of how we draw symbolism from many traditions and a healthy portion of it comes from our uh, Irish pagan roots. But that's neither here nor there. Christmas is much more work than Thanksgiving. Uh, aside from preparing the big meal, Thanksgiving is much more laid back in many ways. There's fewer events. Um, you don't have to do the, the shopping, um, you know, to prepare the wrapping. And, you know, there's decorating. There's so many details. And I enjoy all of that, but it's a lot of work. Thanksgiving, you know, we have to plan the meal. And that that's about it. And in my family, we have a tradition that it hasn't been going on all that long, like 10, 11 years, something like that, where my mom and stepsister and I go to uh, La Encantada Mall, outside, uh, which is an outdoor mall in Tucson, and it's almost always beautiful weather, and we go shopping, and we, we shop mainly for us. It's not like we're hitting the Black Friday sales or anything like that, although there are those things. Uh, we shop for clothes, and we have a long lunch with wine and it is our annual girls get together 
So I'm missing that. Making me weepy again. But it's okay to miss these things, and we're missing it for good reasons. So, you guys, I didn't mean to get into all that. So, anyway, we're hoping that we can still, that we can get together for Christmas. And if we can't, we can't, but we'll try. And I was texting with my mom, and she said, well, it must be nice not to... Uh, at least not have to do the road trip, but I'm even kind of missing the road trip. <laughs> it's like an eight-hour drive from here to Tucson, but, you know, it was sort of our annual excursion. And I, I miss going places. I miss going places far more than I thought I would. Ah, we'll have to see. Did I mess up my makeup? I've got a um, podcast video interview this afternoon that'll be the last of the grouping this is the and i thought ladies um so we'll see how uh i haven't talked with them before i'm not very familiar with what they do so that'll be sort of the last of my obligations and then i'm going to bake a french apple pie which was david's request and make some chutney for tomorrow that's a cranberry pear chutney that's really delicious and is much better. You can make it like a couple weeks ahead, but this is really good for sitting at least overnight. And then tomorrow I will prepare the turkey and do all of those things. So it'll be fun to, I don't often get to cook Thanksgiving dinner all on my own. In fact, I've only done it once before in my life. So that'll be fun to do. And I'm going to write today and take the next couple of days off. So it's nice to have a little bit of a vacation. Looking forward to that. Uh, romancing the runoff. Uh, finished out last night. I know that last I saw they'd made over half a million dollars. So that's amazing uh, to do donate to the campaigns in Georgia and flip the Senate. And I was hugely gratified that... Um, now my signed set of books went for almost $200, and my six months of author coaching went for nearly 1000 came out to like nine fifty three. so thank you all. I greatly appreciate you giving money to this very important cause. Um, other things on my mind, I have a friend who is kind of struggling with her agent, you know, something we talk about a whole lot um, to the point where it becomes, I don't know, enough of a cliche, maybe, that it feels like, um, I don't know, you kind of lose the truth. But I think that's always the, the real harm of a cliche. We often say things like, well, you know, it's a cliche because it's true. Uh, what can be, I think, why we try to avoid cliches in writing, for example, is because a cliche starts to be so familiar that we are deadened to it. We like don't pay attention to it. That's when it's a harmful cliche, um, when it's not useful anymore. So this is almost a cliche when we say that an agent has to love your work and that if they don't love your work, it's really hard for them to sell it. And this can be really frustrating when you're a newbie author because you, 
it's hard to find somebody who loves your work and you're after a while you kind of do the thing where you're like well I don't care if they love my work I just want them to sell my book <laughs> they don't have to love it they just have to you know represent it and sell it but it's it's an odd thing when an agent does not when your own agent doesn't seem to love your work and I have a friend who has a novel that she and she signed with her agent on the basis of this novel and this happens a lot um and the agent has not been able to sell it um for various reasons i'm not sure if they even like totally went out on submission with it because she'd been reworking it and trying to get it to a place where the agent felt like she could take it on submission and i know any number of people who have been through that um Back before I was even agented, I had a friend who like rewrote her book six times or something like that. And I was like, is this how it works? And and the and the answer is not really. I mean, if you're getting to the point where you're rewriting the book six times and you've never even got on to submission, it, it's a time to ask what you're doing. And in this case, um she is going to try for uh, a different agent who represents this subgenre because her agent feels like she can't represent the subgenre, which is fair enough. Um, you definitely need someone who really has the ability to represent that subgenre, but it's it's really confidence breaking when you when your agent doesn't like a book that you've written. And she's she's had a hard time um, trying to. I don't know how I want to put this. Um, you, she and I were messaging about it, and and she said that she she took a blow over it. And um, if you are listening, I totally understand why you would take a blow over that. I think industry professionals forget sometimes, or maybe they have to set it aside um how how fragile we can be about our creations uh and how easily the creative spirit can be bruised by someone you trust someone that you trusted to love a thing to come back and say that they don't love the thing and that it doesn't work um yeah it's it can be really difficult and I think she's doing the right thing by going back to the query trenches, finding someone who will love this book. The other side of this is that, and it's something I've talked about a lot on this podcast, and I think it's a question that, that never quite gets resolved for anybody, is how do you know when, when criticism is good criticism and that you need to put on your big girl panties and take the criticism and change the thing? Or when you should stand your ground and plant your flag and all of these things. Um, it It's hard to know and I'm not sure it ever gets easier. Um, there are certainly famous examples of authors who got big and decided that nobody would edit them uh, to their detriment. Um, Pat Conroy. <laughs> I saw somebody say on Twitter, this is a total aside, and I 
it, it was like a headline skim, so I don't know more about this, but they said, did I ever tell you about the time that I heard Robert Jordan and Pat Conroy on a panel get into an argument about who was the better writer? And I didn't know that person, but I really wanted to, if I had known them, I might have said, well, did they actually pull their dicks out or not? <laughs> um, irreverent me, right? Oh, I, I should go look it up because I would kind of be curious to hear about that story. At, at the same time, I don't want to hear about the dick swinging. So there we are. Uh, anyway, so one thing about being a creative and writing a book is that you have to believe in the book. And people always say that to you, right? That's another one of those things that becomes, um, you become almost deaf to hearing because people are like, oh, well, you must believe in your own work. You must love your own book. And you're like, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> and at the same time, those very same people will say to you, well, you have to accept uh, criticism. You have to understand that the market's not ready for this book. And if you change this and do this, um, people who tell you that you should believe in your own book and that that's the most important thing. I don't know. I think that they have a, they have a different perspective and a different agenda. And that's, uh, that's life. I, and I think that's one of the things to keep in mind about being agented and pitching books to traditional publishing. I keep looking at the clock because I realize that I'm behind schedule. Uh, it's three till nine and I'm only 14 minutes and I might have to cut this short. So I'm not late meeting Dorinda. I, I was trying to get the light right and I clearly spent way too much time futzing with that. So it's it's one of those things that I think no author is ever completely confident in their book. And and I know that people will say that there's exceptions to this. And I, I mean, a couple of those exceptions spring to my mind, you know, where they're like, I know something's good. I, I don't think we always know when something is good. Uh, maybe believing in what you wrote and being confident that it's good are two different things. Because as I often bring up on here, I, I don't understand how people decide what's good. Um, the other people have seem to have a framework for that that I lack, that they're perfectly willing to say, this is good and that's bad. Um, and people who like this thing have no taste. And, you know, and I feel like I'm a person who has definitely cultivated taste. I, you know, I have all the education and so forth. So I don't know why I lack that inherent snobbery, except that I know on many levels I deliberately rejected it because I found so much of it to be false. And some of that was because I came up in literary circles and I was at book festivals and stuff, and I got really tired of the people who divide everything into good and bad and art and not art and you know, like pop music is not worthwhile. I meant to tell you guys, I probably didn't mention this, that I read an essay in The New Yorker, which I really loved. And I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes. Um, it was called The Bridge Dog. And 
the gal in the essay refers to listening to Taylor Swift's folklore album during the pandemic and the song Cardigan and how that affected her. And I thought, you know, did I ever think I would hear a New Yorker essayist refer to uh, Taylor Swift? Maybe yes, maybe no, but I thought it was really awesome. Take that, all the Taylor naysayers. So I think that this thing of believing in your own work can get really fraught, you know, because you know what you're trying to do. And sometimes, sometimes I think you're just ahead of your time. I think sometimes you create this thing, you pull it from another place and nobody else gets it. And that just makes things, um, it's, you know, how do you know? How do you know that it is because you are, uh, I'm going to email Dorinda and tell her I'm running late. How do you know that it's because you're sticking by your vision of the thing? And we certainly have plenty of examples of this, right, of various kinds of art and history. And how do you know that it's that you're being stubborn? <laughs> we, we send subject lines that are uh, related to, like, songs or quotes. And she said the subject line, everyone was kung fu zooming today. So she always makes me laugh. All right. Telling her running late there. Immortalized that I sometimes run late. And I'm sure that comes as no surprise to any of you. So I realized that there are no answers in that. Um, and David and I were having a conversation about that. And he was talking about, you know, like if Jimi Hendrix hadn't found someone to believe in him, he would have just like never been more than this guy who played in the back of a bar because what he was doing was so different. And that's always true for people who are um, creating something. I don't care what you're creating. Uh, you know, like a friend of mine had, a, or, or this happens to a lot of authors when they're trying to sell it in the traditional marketplaces, they'll say, well, there's, there's nothing that makes it stand out. And and it's always this thing with editors where they want something that's different. They'll say, give me something different, but they don't want something too different. If it's not different enough, they'll say it doesn't stand out in a crowded marketplace. If it's too different, they'll say, well, we don't know how to market this. Uh, so it can be hugely frustrating. And, if, and I realize all of you who self-publish, when you get into self-publishing, this changes things. But this is all a question of when you're dealing with other people um, talking about your work, thinking about your work, giving you feedback on your work, knowing when should you try to change a thing and make it more marketable. And there are certainly people who are very determined on this kind of thing and will say, um, no, I'm not changing my work for anybody. But then do you run the risk of the Pat Conroy syndrome or countless other authors who I suppose have clung to their niches in particular ways, but maybe are not doing a, <laughs> she says she's reading an article on flash fiction. <laughs> we'll have to find out why. Um, well, anyway, enough about that. And maybe I'll have more thoughts after the weekend. It'll be nice to um, do some 
planning. I'm sort of at a point in Golden Griffin where I think that I, I just hit the Act 2 climax and I need to figure some things out, which you guys know is not my forte. But I'm trying to figure out exactly what a problem is that they are facing, which I usually don't know until I write about it. But I'm thinking at this point I may, since I'm going to have a four-day break from the book, I might on Monday go back and start revising from the beginning and do my running start to the end. We will see. We'll see how today goes, but I'm thinking that's what I'm going to do. And keep uh, going on, keep going and going. I mean, in many ways, that's why we talk about this is the only thing we can control, right? So you can control the writing, control the book. Um, and ultimately, you are the one who decides, right? You decide if it's going to be the uh, the thing that you want it to be. Um, you have to decide if the critique that you're getting from people is valid, because in the end, you are the it's it's your book, and no one will ever care about it as much as you do, for better or worse. All right, I'm going to go get to work. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful holiday, however you may celebrate. And I will remind you that First Cup of Coffee is part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network. And you will find more podcasts you love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And I will talk to you all on Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.